Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogics for balancing hormone levels. Theralogics also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogics products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogics, supplements from science. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm here with my amazing, talented, splendiferous, co-host Dr. Carrie <laughs> from Fertility Hello. Center, Las Vegas. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. I'm just wondering if splendiferous is really a word, but it sounds really good, though. Carrie uses it, it all the time. But it's just because Carrie uses it doesn't mean it's a word, though. <laughs> I alone have used it enough times to put it in the lexicon, and it is okay. in Webster's Dictionary. Maybe at least the so. Urban Dictionary or something. Yes. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now I'm going to actually look it up and see if it is legit, because... <laughs> In my mind, it, it is and always will be. <laughs> well, we also have a splendiferous guest, Dr. Lauren Lemieux from Forum Health. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are so excited to speak with you today. Lauren is an a obesity mes- medicine specialist. She is board certified in internal medicine and obesity mes- medicine, and she is also a physician nutrition specialist. So she is absolutely brilliant when it comes to the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Oh, Carrie has a comment. And I would like to mention that she is also splendiferous, which Merriam-Webster says is extraordinarily or showily impressive. Yeah. I mean, she's done a bunch of fellowships, so she is definitely splendiferous for sure. No, she's (laughs) legit splendor here. (laughs) So, Lauren, when we were talking beforehand, we were we were talking about your your musical preferences. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I was sharing with you all how you may not expect this when you meet me. Um, and it's not until I will tell people, but one of my favorite genres of music is heavy metal. And um, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be able to actually perform playing the drums, a heavy metal song at my own wedding with Whoa. my husband. <laughs> yeah. So... It was um, Van Halen's All Wait, which uh, is probably actually not the genre of metal that I normally listen to, to to be honest. I like the metal that like you can't really understand what they're saying, but like the drums are awesome and the guitar is just like screaming. Um, But my husband's a big Van Halen fan and he plays the keyboard. So he wanted um, a piece that he would be able to demonstrate his skills. And the drum part wasn't too hard for me. At that point, I was in residency. So like I had no time to practice. Um, And it was kind of crazy. We practiced a lot, like whenever we could. I had an electronic drum set. My husband has a keyboard. And then on our wedding day, we have all these you know things to get ready. And then we did a sound check with the band and, and played it with them three times. And it's like, okay, good luck. <laughs> and we, we performed well. I didn't rip, rip my wedding dress. I didn't drop a drumstick. <laughs> so it nice. was really fun. Yeah. That is so cool. That's so cool. So, so is Kiss in the same genre? Is it, would you consider them as heavy metal or not? They are. Yeah. They're one of like the founders of heavy metal. But I mean, heavy metal now has so many different genres, subgenres. I mean, it, it really, like when you, 
when I speak to another metalhead, it's like we could be talking <laughs> about two completely different like types of metal, but they're still called metal. And how, what's what links them all together? What makes them metal? Oh, that's a great question. I think part of it is just what is the makeup of the band itself? So like, you know, you have the singer, the bass, the drums, the guitar. Um, But what's really fascinating is metal has started to expand beyond that and incorporated other things like keyboard, for example. And then there's some metal bands where they have like electric violinists. And I think there's another metal band where the lead singer plays the bagpipes. So it's like really dynamic and, you know, it changes all the time. So it's pretty neat. Have you heard, like, I kind of remember growing up, there were a couple of metal bands that would pair with a symphony orchestra. Uh-huh. And yeah. The symphony would play whatever their songs were with them. And <laughs> I... I have spent time looking for them because that's that happens to be a rabbit hole that I like jumping down of <laughs> taking whatever really anti-symphony music that you can't and then combine yeah. symphony because I love how that sounds. But mm-hmm. I can't actually find it. And I kind of remember, I think it was Pearl Jam or Metallica or something. I thought Metallica did that, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you have like Trans-Siberian Orchestra with like the holiday music that's like a little... I, see, I don't I consider that as metal. metal. I wouldn't think it... I love that. Yeah, some of their stuff has like real like metal riffs there. Yeah. Huh. So, so the I'm riffs, that makes, that makes it more metal if there's a riff there, like a guitar riff? Well, I mean, part of it. It's, that's a really great question of like what makes something metal. I mean, to me, it's it also like like that passion and power behind it and how it makes you feel. Yeah. And then like, of course, like if you can headbang to it, then that has to be metal, right? Gotcha. <laughs> you have to wear earplugs and your head's going like this. It's metal. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you're wondering if the show you're going to is heavy metal, like just look, is everyone wearing black t-shirts? Okay. Then ah, you're probably at a metal show. Okay. Okay. There you <laughs> and go. Just for our listeners, for context, Lauren looks, uh, like, like she'd be, the heavy metal fan. Not, like she'd be really at home in a library. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All do right. we have questions? We do. We do. We have a question today. Hi, Docs. I'm absolutely obsessed with your show and with the three of you. That's so very sweet. Uh, I recently found out that my Spotify app, that I am the top 0.1% listener of your podcast and feel honored. Oh my goodness, that's so (laughs) cool. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, I am working on my weight because I know that being a healthy weight is so important. Have type 2 diabetes that I hopefully want to control better with weight loss, and I'm 37 years old. I know time is of the essence, but I also know that some fertility clinics have weight restrictions, for example, for egg retrieval. Typically, you need to have a BMI of 40. Can you speak to this? Different centers have different limitations on BMI. What can I do in the meantime? When should I go and see a specialist? Should I wait until I'm at my weight goal? Thank you. So some of this we're going to answer now, and some of this we're going to answer during during our talk with, with Lauren. I, I would say it doesn't hurt to go see somebody, you know, no matter what your weight is, just talk to them because different clinics do have different standards. And, you know, sometimes you can get some things going, you know, they can check your hemoglobin A1C, make sure you're, see what, how on track you are with your diabetes. Sometimes things like that really throw us off track more than the weight does. It depends a little bit on how close you are to your weight goals. Um, but I would definitely see the clinic first and then you kind of know what your goal is and you guys can set a goal and figure out how to get it accomplished. And sometimes we figure out things during your evaluation that are going to take time. And so we might as well be like, if there's a sperm factor we need to work yeah. on, since it takes 72 days to make a new sperm, you know, it, it it's, we can be doing multiple things at once. So we're, we're very, um, 
adverse at the, you know, very good at doing kind of the full pronged assault. So, <laughs> um, you know, give, give us the opportunity to be looking at the full picture. Um, I think one of your questions was why, why do we have BMI limits? Um, and some of it depends clinic to clinic. So I would say, at least for our clinics, although we do have some variability in our BMI limits, it really comes down to safety during the egg retrieval. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if, if you have a BMI over 40 or over 45, whatever the limit happens to be, it is, quite honestly, it's harder for us to see what we're looking at. Um, your ovaries are enlarged. They're sitting next to very large vessels we need to avoid. Um, and it it... It also has issues with how hard it is for you to maintain your airway when you're under the anesthesia. So most of us are doing um, egg retrievals under essentially general anesthesia, but you are still breathing on your own. And so the more weight you have on your chest or your neck, the more those soft tissues are likely to kind of collapse um, because you're not awake to keep them open and um, cause airway difficulties. And safety always comes number one. Getting you pregnant is number two. And um, so when it comes to safety, we, we just we just can't compromise on that. And well said. <laughs> the, the factor of where we do our retrievals, because most of these tend to be in outpatient surgery centers attached to the clinic, right. which is based on favoring the eggs and keeping them in the most controlled environment possible because a regular, even a well-equipped hospital is not going to have the embryology setup that we need. Um, And so when we're in these outpatient surgical centers, you just don't have the same backup that you do when you are in the hospital. So I can take somebody down to the hospital outpatient surgery center and I can do a lot more involved stuff there because I have backup. Because if something happens, I have the entire hospital and emergency room right behind me, as opposed to if I'm out in clinic where I tend to be really judicious about, all right, how do I keep this patient safe in the environment that we happen to be working in? Absolutely. So with that, let's let's segue to Lauren. Lauren, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do at Forum Health and kind of how you interact with fertility patients. And then we'll kind of ask some questions from there. (laughs) Absolutely. So Form, for those of you who aren't familiar with our program, is a telemedicine obesity medicine practice. And basically, patients are paired with a doctor who is board certified in obesity medicine and their own registered dietitian. And they meet with their providers very frequently. Um, The doctor visits are about once a month and the dietitian visits are about every two weeks. So this is really, yeah, high intensity behavioral change counseling. You know, we're supporting them with nutrition, physical activity, lifestyle changes um, to support them on their weight loss journey. And then me as a medical doctor, if appropriate, might be prescribing medication. So, you know, we'll be watching for any side effects or issues with that, monitoring their weight trajectory. Um, But ultimately, we have patients who are referred to us actually from their fertility specialist who, you know, go over, you know, their their medical history. And, you know, we'll do that workup of, you know, is there anything else that could be going on before just saying, oh, it's a weight issue. Um, But also we'll say, hey, you know, if we are going to go down the route of these types of procedures, like you're describing, you know, for your safety, we need to bring your weight down. And so they work very closely with us. Um, and, you know, when they come to see us in that context, like they need to lose a certain amount of weight so that they can have an egg retrieval, for example, you know, 
the first question I'm going to be asking them really is like, what is your timeline? Because, you know, yeah. if they're trying to, you know, lose weight in a six month period, a year period, that's very different than someone who's, you know, maybe in their like late 20s, early 30s, and, and might have a little bit more time to take yeah. to lose weight. Um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this maybe in a little bit, or um, I think one of your other speakers might talk about this more when you have her on, but there are medications for weight loss that have been shown to be you know, highly effective, but you know, we're talking about over the span of a year. And so, you know, and some of these medications, we actually have to stop two months before a person can you know, go through an egg retrieval. So that's like an even more longer process. Um, and I have to know what they're planning to get into. So just for our listeners, if you go back a couple weeks, we talked with Dr. Florencia Halperin uh, about all of the medications. And then a couple weeks before that, um, we talked with a really fabulous, hang on, I got to get the terminology right, dietitian, registered dietitian. Um, and, uh, and she was just fabulous as well. Um, her name is Julia Axelbaum. And so we're putting this series together because at the beginning of the year is when everybody's resolutions are, are uh-huh. still strong. And so we're trying to, <laughs> I'm sure you're really sure busy in January. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's ramping so, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So along with this episode, go back and listen to those other two. So tell us a little bit about how you cancel somebody on either end of the weight spectrum, because we know that underweight's not good and overweight's not good. So how do you talk to somebody who's underweight and what do you talk about with them? Yeah. So for context, where I am right now, I do not see patients who are underweight. I mean, the people who come to form, you know, they have a BMI of at least 27. In the past, I have worked with women who are underweight and, you know, were referred to me because it was felt that their weight needed to actually increase uh, to help with their fertility. And so when I'm talking to these patients, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's getting an understanding of what is their, their lifestyle like and is their body weight something that they've always, you know, just had a low body weight or is yeah. this a new thing? Is this, you know, common for their family to just be tiny people or, you know, is this not? And I'm sure, you know, you also are thinking about, you know, is the body weight too low because there's excessive caloric restriction? Um, is there, you know, an a issue with like over-exercising or not mm-hmm. necessarily over-exercising, but are they, you know, an elite athlete and like training for triathlons and yeah. that's affecting their weight as well. Um, and I often think about, you know, weight balance as almost like Goldilocks and the three bears when it comes to fertility, because, you know, you can have too little or you can have too much, or you can have just right. Luckily, the, the spectrum isn't that narrow as like temperature of oatmeal, but <laughs> you get my point. Um, and so when it comes to inadequate, you know, body weight or body fat, I mean, your body is basically telling you, look, I don't have enough to support a growing baby. You know, I'm just trying to support this human being and their fertility drops is, is kind of how I think about it. What about on the other end of the spectrum? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of helping them come up with a plan for how to how to lose weight or explaining to them why they're they're having trouble getting pregnant, which which question? I, like what are what are some things that you advise when when somebody comes in, they're like, I want to work on getting pregnant now. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm not planning on waiting six months or a year because Got I've it. already been trying for five years because that's gonna mm-hmm. be the most common situation in in the short term and and is it even worth doing something in the short term well i think it's always worth doing something um for this type of patient who's you know looking at very very short term like let's just get things going you know i really put on my you know nutrition hat and i'm working on their nutrition and their lifestyle you know activities um if it's someone coming in to see me at form you know with excess weight 
you know, I really want to get a good dietary history, understand, you know, is, is there a challenge with like appetite, emotional eating, food cravings, um, and really kind of hammer that down and, and learn a little bit more about are there little things that we can adjust that won't make a huge impact on their lifestyle. You know, not about, you know, having a patient jump onto, you know, the latest fad diet or, you know, significantly restrict their calories where they're not eating anything. Um, It's about how can we make these changes, but also like, let's track things. Let's make sure we, we can move things along. Assuming that's appropriate. There are some patients who come to see me and they've done the food tracking, they've done all the writing, the journaling, and they're like, please don't make me write another thing down. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's all right. Um, with what we do with our patients, um, a lot of times they'll take food photos, which is a lot easier for them, um, just to track things. And our dietitians are really great at reviewing those and giving some feedback. Um, and Julia probably mentioned this because she likes to talk a lot about it. Um, when she describes our nutrition plan at forum, but you all also counsel patients on what we call our plating method, where we really focus on like protein to help patients feel full and then produce to also help them feel more full, take up more space in the stomach, um, but not add a lot of calories. So it's really leveraging the foods that we're eating to help, you know, promote that weight loss and induce that caloric restriction if that's the direction that we're going in. But regardless, you know, anything that we do, we want to make sure something a patient can sustain long term. And especially, you know, if they do get pregnant, you know, I don't want things going the opposite direction where, you know, they're not able to maintain the nutrition plan that we've started and you know, then their weight skyrockets or, you know, they, they run into other issues um, because they felt too deprived for so long, you know, trying to lose the weight before getting pregnant. So what's one of the most, oh, sorry, Carrie, you go ahead. I was going to say, so what are some of the little tips and tricks you use for people who like, for example, have a ginormous sweet tooth and how do they get through that? <laughs> yeah. okay. for a friend. That's a good one. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So asking for a friend. Yeah. Like one of the things that maybe isn't like the first direction people will go in, but like my little pearl is I always ask about sleep habits. Because what's really interesting is when we're chronically sleep deprived, the ghrelin hormone that makes us hungrier goes up, the fullness hormones go down. And I find that these patients who have sweet cravings, it tends to be like in the evening or at nighttime. Mm-hmm. And I ask them how their sleep is. They're like, oh, I get like, you know, four or five hours. And I'm like, okay, well, do you feel pretty tired during the day? Yeah. And chances are, it's like, you know, can we give you a little bit more sleep? Like, I think this is your body telling you I need energy and like the sweets are what they, they turn to. And I find myself doing this too. Um, and so that tells me, okay, I need to get more rest. Um, but that would be one thing, um, you know, for, for sweet cravings, it's also like, what does the rest of the day look like? I mean, I have some patients where they kind of get in this habit where they feel like, oh, I do so well all day and I'm so perfect. And then I just can't hold on anymore. And it tells me, well, maybe we're being a little too restrictive already. And maybe, you know, maybe you need to have some of that carbohydrate like at lunchtime or have it at dinner. Um, you know, if they're just having like, you know, protein and veggies the whole day, how your body's going to want some carbohydrates. The sweets are a pretty simple source of that. Um, and then of course, like, you know, some patients really like the ideas of alternatives. So we'll talk about like, what is it that that's your sweet craving? So, you know, for your friend, is there anything in particular that he or she like really craves for sweets? <laughs> I mean, she may or may not really love chocolate and ice cream. Okay. Dark chocolate. Okay. May, yeah. may or may not. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And and I'm also kind of curious because patients will share this with me. It's like oftentimes related to like around the time of their period where like the chocolate cravings mm-hmm. come up. Yeah. Like not to be stereotypical, but it exists. I mean, it, that's a thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, making sure that they're balancing out their meals earlier in the day, you know, 
having a source of carbohydrate if they're you know trying to lose weight. Sometimes they cut that out naturally earlier in the day, maybe making that part of that. And then if it's a certain food type or flavor, some people do well with the replacement. So my favorite go-to is like, if you like chocolate, you know, do you like protein shakes, chocolate protein shakes? Some of them taste just like hot chocolate. Now that it's cold out in the wintertime, try a protein mm. shake, hot chocolate. It's the simplest recipe, just micro for like, you know, 45 seconds a minute. And it can really give you that chocolatey flavor, but that protein helps you feel full. And, you know, you sip on it. So it takes some time. It can give your body that moment of like, okay, I'm getting that, that taste that I really enjoy. Whereas you, you know, if you grab a handful of M&Ms I and mean, they're gone in like, you know, 10 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. So there's also like, how can we extend that flavor and enjoy it for longer? So then, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like you have to go back to having more and more of the candy or whatever it is. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. that thank you okay <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious when you look at the pictures of things that patients have plated what's kind of the most common thing that you see that's that maybe they don't realize that they're doing incorrectly or that could be sabotaging what they're doing can I guess can I guess sure go for it it's not colorful enough <laughs> that's a really I think good point. I think the portions are too big would be my I was guess. gonna vote for portion sizes too yeah you know well, the portion sizes actually are a little bit challenging with the, the food photos because a lot of times patients will post a picture and then say, but I don't eat the whole thing. You're like, oh, well, <laughs> what part of it do you eat? My friend but eats actually, part of I, it, but I don't eat the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with Susan. It's, it's colorful and, and vegetables, ah, produce, colorful. like that's the hardest thing. And I think, you know, as Americans, it's just, you know, produce is really hard to come by unless it's like French fries and, you know, tomatoes and ketchup. Like, I mean, when yeah, you think about it, fries, do they count? right? Well, <laughs> You know, they do have some fiber. There's a little more vitamin A with the orangey color. But um, yeah, I, I think it, it can be very hard um, to to get that in. And so I, ch- I talk to my patients a lot about like little creative things like, hey, you know, it's the holidays recently. So, you know, you love the mashed potatoes. Great. I love them too. But can you, you know, mix in some cauliflower or something like that, um, which to me, like if you do a 50-50 mix, you, you may not notice it. it. Your relatives yeah. may not notice it. Just throwing yeah. that out there. <laughs> I, I have a question. I had a patient this week, and this is not the first time I, we have all had this patient come in before. And can you address kind of the psychological impact of obesity, fertility, and being angry at the fact that they're in that situation and they all, everybody has that friend who's bigger than them, who has mm-hmm. had four kids yeah. and, and really addressing that kind of psychological aspect of it, because it, it's, it's real and it's frustrating and, and, yeah. and it, it's, it's a major challenge for a lot of our patients. Yeah. Well, to me, when I hear that, that come up, I mean, what I think a lot about is just how for so many years and probably for most of the patient's life, people have treated obesity as, you know, a personal problem and not a medical disease, which is what it truly is. And in fact, you know, I'll be very blunt. I feel like insurance companies look at it this way as well. I mean, can you imagine 
if they were to deny coverage for you know certain cancer treatments or yeah. high blood pressure or diabetes, saying it's a personal choice, you know, oh mm-hmm. well, you decided to smoke cigarettes, now you have lung cancer. Wait, what? That's that's horrible. But they yeah. do that for obesity treatment, and I I just get uh, I'm I'm reeling it in a little bit because I get very frustrated about this because I think it's so wrong. It's a biological disease, and so that's kind of how we feel about fertility treatment exactly. for many years. It's the same yeah. thing. It's like this is a disease. This affects yes. people's lives and they won't pay yeah. for it, but it's not a lot better in our, on our right. for that. And I think it's compounded when you have someone who's pursuing fertility and then they also ha- are sh- struggling with their weight because they probably get a lot of pressure from other people saying, well, if you just lost 20 pounds, like, yeah. you know, if you just, just relax, didn't eat lost that, 20 pounds, you'd be fine. Yeah, totally. and, and getting it, they're getting it from their doctors before they come to right. it. Right. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I don't know so how many true. people are like, well, they told me all I needed to do was lose weight and I'm struggling and I can't lose weight and I'm still mm. stuck. Yeah. 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 And it, and for a lot of them, I mean, I mean, the patients who I see, I mean, they work so hard and they get treated like, oh, you haven't tried hard enough. Or if you just mm-hmm. didn't do this, it's like, no, they do the same thing over and over. They diet, right. they, you know, buy into the weight loss programs. They do the exercise videos mm-hmm. and they lose a little bit and then they regain it. And then they go back and they, they keep trying at it. And so I tell my patients, I'm like, look, you are like so hardworking and so determined. If this was a, if this was something that you chose for yourself, there's no way you would be in this situation because look at what all you've done so far to try to get out of it. And so, you know, we, we do work really closely with patients in kind of untangling that, you know, stigma and self-blame that, you know, has kind of been ingrained, unfortunately, by society yeah. in a lot of ways, um, but also empowering them with some tools and support to help them start to move the needle. And then, you know, that really gets the motivation and excitement going when we're seeing things move along. Um, and then as an aside, like, you know, this is a biological disease. And so for some patients, they do all the things, you know, the nutrition, lifestyle changes and things, you know, barely move. And so, you know, I do have other tools in my toolbox with medications or, you know, in some case, cases, you know, patients will undergo bariatric surgery. I mean, there's mm-hmm. other things we have available. Um, so while, yes, lifestyle is a huge, important component of it, you know, we have to appreciate that there's other tools that can help address this. And, and I feel very fortunate to be in the place where we are now where yeah. now we're seeing like new medications come out that are um, you know quite effective and you know giving a lot of people hope and um you know I'm just excited to see where we'll be in the next like you know 10 or 20 years with a disease that's so prevalent too I'm just curious with the medicines that are out and I know you, know you have talked a lot about these but you know they they say that you need to wait eight weeks to let that kind of get out of your system is that just because we don't have any clue what they could do or there have been animal studies that have suggested there's some sort of problem or why is that yeah there are some animal studies um, specifically for these injectable weight loss medications glp ones and then glp1 gip receptor agonists where um, there has been fetal harm to animals mm, when they okay. were taking the medication and then we're pregnant, mm-hmm. um, the, the eight week or two month washout period is because these medications have a pretty long half-life. It's about mm-hmm. um, 14 days in, or 10 to 14 days in some cases. So we just need to let that medication completely get out of the system before a patient you know, is going to undergo the egg retrieval or become pregnant um, for safety purposes. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, unfortunately, we, we also find that, you know, patients with these medications, they can become more fertile and, you know, things yeah. happen. <laughs> <It's 22>. um, 
So we do, have, we always counsel our, our female patients who, you know, can get pregnant that, hey, we need to use some form of birth control. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is what to expect if you are planning on getting pregnant, you know, for a timeline. That's why I mentioned earlier, like, that's why that's so important. Because, mm-hmm. you know, eight weeks is a long time to wait if you've already been waiting. Yeah. Go ahead, Susan. <laughs> We're both like, we both want to ask something. So I want to ask a question regarding kind of the other half of the population, also known as Uh men. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I can tell you when, um, you know, I have a couple come into my office and they walk in and he easily weighs 350 plus. I am definitely having some low palpitations worried about his swimmers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, how how do you how do you treat do you, do you treat men when it comes to obesity and fertility and is there any difference when it comes to what they can do and can't do when they're undergoing their fertility treatments? That's a really great question. So I actually have one patient on my panel whose wife is um, going through fertility treatment and uh, I think she's pursuing IVF. Um, but regardless, you know, I think weight loss can be beneficial, especially if there's, you know, metabolic complications of the excess weight. And again, for very, for clear context, like I see patients who have a BMI of like 27 or higher with a weight related medical condition. So like, that's the kind of patients I'm talking about for weight loss specifically. Um, we know that, uh, you know, excess weight in one parent can increase the risk for, you know, metabolic disease in the child, you know, long-term. So I'm thinking about that. Um, but for their, their swimmers, you know, weight loss can be helpful. I will say not a lot of men, um, ask or ask me specifically, like, or share with me, like, oh, my wife's doing fertility treatment. I want to, you know, lose weight for that. I don't think I've had anyone like bluntly say that. Um, but I should probably ask about that a little bit more. And then, um, you know, their, for their treatment though, like ultimately it does, you know, involve these main pillars of you know, nutrition, physical activity, lifestyle changes, um, from a medication standpoint, you know, for my practice, um, you know, there's one medication, metformin, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with this study that oh, came yeah. out, but there's some concern about I think it was like genital abnormalities in the children that were born to men who had taken metformin at the time of conception. Mm-hmm. So I just stay away from that medication if you know my male patients are planning on you know having kids. So that's where this mm-hmm. conversation might come up. But otherwise, um, you know, I do have a little bit more freedom in terms of other medications if we're going to go down that route. Do they? Do men need to wait for the GLP ones to have a washout, or is it really just um, kind of the in utero exposure for women? We like, think it's the in utero exposure. I haven't seen anything in the prescriber information that men need to wait. It's it's only directed or recommended for women. Okay. As a general rule, when men are heavier, though, don't they tend to have a little bit higher estrogen levels and lower testosterone levels, which could, yes. I guess, impact sperm? Yeah. And then, you know, kind of jokingly, but I think this is relevant, you know, as part of our, you know, foundation of lifestyle changes for weight loss, it's going to be increasing physical activity. To prepare for this lecture, I did read that, you know, biking is not so good for sperm count. So like, that might be the one exercise I tell my male patients, maybe don't, don't go into that as your, your sport of choice to um, get more active, but anything else, I think it's fair game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually saw that in a patient. He was training for, I think, a half marathon or I guess a triathlon because he had a bike part of it. <clears throat> and we saw over the course of like three to four months, his counts just started going. <laughs> and I asked him what the problem was. When his count so much, it was motility. And he was doing a lot more extended time biking because the friction in the seat um, impacted the, the sperm. Mm-hmm. Is there an impact uh, that changes when on the on the kids? So if you've got a parent who's 
never been overweight, a parent who was overweight and lost it and then got pregnant versus someone who is still actively overweight. Like, do we know how much of a difference that carrying the extra weight and losing it makes compared to the people who never, who don't lose it? So I'm not aware of any studies. Granted, this isn't something I've actively looked up myself, but (laughs) why I think this is still, you know, important is this concept of, you know, we have the genes that we're born with, right? But then how they are expressed is actually directly influenced by the environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when the thought is that when a baby is, you know, developing in utero um, in a mom who has excess weight, now that excess weight is affecting the expression of certain genes that then increase the baby's risk for, you know, let's say things like uh, excess weight, diabetes, you know, heart disease, like years and years down the line. But, you know, we also appreciate that, you know, obesity, for example, is so multifactorial. So it's not just that. It's also, you know, it's influenced by whether or not the mom had a C-section or a vaginal birth. Did she breastfeed or did she, you know, use formula? And so there's all these little pieces that go into it. So at the end of the day, like while we try to optimize the environment as best as possible, I think there's certain things that, that maybe we can control or we can help with and other things where you know, we just kind of do the best we can in that environment. Can we go back to this like C-section vaginal delivery breast? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a little more information on that? Yeah. So there's been some observational or I guess would you call them retrospective studies looking at the risk for obesity in offspring where a child was born via C-section versus vaginal. Yeah. And huh. what's really fascinating is it's thought that, you know, a baby's gut microbiome is largely influenced by the bacteria that it's exposed to when it comes out the birth canal. The sajana, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, it's just kind of like one of these really fascinating pieces huh. of uh, research looking at how the microbiome affects weight yeah. balance long-term. And yeah, obviously you have no control how you were born. <laughs> like neither does your yeah. mom really, right? Um, so I, I just think it's it's like an interesting fact, but you know, in what I do, if that's how you're born, that's how you're born. These are the cards we're dealt. Like let's address, you know, some of the other factors. But um, yeah, it does highlight just how amazing the microbiome is and also how little we know about it. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you knew what the issues were and then maybe you could replace the bacteria that the gut didn't have or needed or whatever. That's yeah, interesting. That, that's definitely the hope for like years down the road, but yeah. definitely don't go out and buy those probiotic supplements thinking you're going to, you know, completely reset your microbiome or, you know, spend hundreds of dollars on the the stool testing because the science just isn't there yet. Oh, okay, interesting. Interesting. In that study, did they happen to control really well for the weight of the the parent? in both the vaginal and the C-section group? Because the other complicating factor is that overweight women are more likely to get a C-section because they're more likely to have failure of progression in a vaginal delivery where kids just don't want to come down and out because (laughs) of physics, I guess, is what it boils down to. Um, but did they control for that really well? Because that's I would that's I mean I'd have to look at the study, but I would said. yeah, I would think they'd have to at least, you know, in their analysis make sure that they're trying to eliminate those other variables that could play into it, like you know, the BMI of the mother, for example, because mm-hmm. we know you know her BMI is gonna increase the risk for obesity as well. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. That is very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So Lauren, what other words of advice would you have for our listeners who are starting off this new year and wanting to have a baby and potentially, you know, maybe get their weight under a little better situation? What what would be a couple of, of good pointers? Okay. I think, you know, first and foremost, 
you know, at the bottom line, you're hearing it from a medical expert here. You know, we're all in the agreement that this is a biological process. It's not, you know, a willpower issue. It's not a personal, you know, thing that you've decided for yourself. You know, there's other things that go into this and there are medical providers out there who can and want to help you and address it from a medical standpoint and not, you know, try to sell you things or, you know, try to get you to follow the latest fad diet, you know, only to have you fail and then, you know, go through the whole process again. And so I think understanding that we have a lot of compassion for what you're going through and it's not your fault is really important to, to go into that. Um, the other thing is, you know, how can I best support my body is what can I do and maintain long-term? So again, it goes back to that idea. I don't want you, you know, trying to follow a keto diet if, you know, you hate eating meat, right? Like that's just not <laughs> sustainable. Um, and so finding things that work best for you. And it is unfortunately, you know, a process and there can be, you know, trial and error. And sometimes it really helps to work with someone, you know, who is experienced in this field and, and get that support. So if you've been thinking about, you know, hey, I've done this a lot on my own, you know, maybe it is time to reach out and get that extra mm-hmm. help. Um, because, you know, there's people like me out there who love to help patients and, um, you know, it, it's not easy to do on your own. Yeah. How do you uh, advise patients, particularly who want to get pregnant, who do go on something like a keto diet and they find that it works for them? Because when I think of keto, I always think of the full word ketoacidosis. And I'm thinking about, yeah. like, we don't really want a pregnant woman in an acidotic state. No, so do they need to deliberately stay off those keto diets once they are pregnant in order to facilitate good development of the baby? Yeah. So to my knowledge, knowledge, any sort of like ketogenic diet is not recommended in pregnancy. I mean, the baby needs the carbohydrates and um, we don't typically advise even a low carb diet in pregnancy either. Mm-hmm. Um, even for our patients with gestational diabetes, you're not asking them to go, you know, super low carb. And so, yeah, I think it, it is a challenge. If you follow something like that, you lose a bunch of weight and now your doctors are going to tell you that's not healthy for you while you're carrying the baby. You know, what's going to happen with their weight afterwards? Well, some of it may come back and, and that can be dis- distressing. Right. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us and giving us all this great advice and really make the point that, you know, whether it's fertility or obesity, it, it, they are, these are medical issues. These are truly medical issues. And there are people like all of us to help you kind of guide your way through this maze that you you find yourself in and, and we're happy to be there for you. So to our listeners, thank you so much. Um, be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Follow, subscribe, and stay updated. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit some specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on our Acidoc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, and we want to know what you are thinking. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment, not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Did you know 64% of employers added a family building benefit because an employee asked for it? No matter the size of your organization, you have the power to make a difference for current and future employees. Want to know where to start? Progeny is here to help. Progeny is a family building benefits company that has been helping employees and employers advocate for increased access to effective and equitable fertility and family building benefits for over seven years. To get the resources that can help you make a difference, visit progyny.com forward slash talk to HR today.